0: This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, your favorite podcast about happiness and work culture. Hi, I'm Bruce Daisley. Thank you for listening again. I really appreciate it. We've got a great episode today. I'll, I'll tell you how to stay in touch at the end of the show, but if you do want to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it's certainly one of the things that most people are getting excited about this year. Lots of new listeners this week. We were featured in the Guardian podcast of the week last week. There was also a piece in the Times on Saturday. If you didn't see it, I was photographed doing an oddly contorted head scratch. All promotions, good promotion, all that. But I do look like I might have nits. I don't have nits. Disease free since 83. That's my motto. Where eighty three is an arbitrary date made to make me sound like a could be millennial. Kanye West said, We the Millennials. I always think of that. He's almost as old as me. He also doesn't have head lice. As I don't, I think we've established. So this week I'm chatting to the number one business author in the world and I think that was relevant because as I said last week, what we're going to try and get down to in the next eight or so episodes is an understanding of work culture and science and Dan Pink's drive is all about the motivations to make us go to work. So that's relevant whether you're a parent and you're you're paying your children to do their homework or whether you're uh, an employer or someone at work and you're trying to, to pay someone to do something that they previously loved doing. Extrinsic incentives can often have the opposite effect to what's intended. I'd already read Dan Pink's Drive Uh, a couple of times before the chat and I I listened to it again before I I, uh, connected with him. I can't recommend it enough. Honestly, a remarkable book. I think relevant to our discussion now because it's so deeply rooted in science and evidence. Our chat is a companion piece to the book so we cover adjacent subjects but not the content itself. Previously on Drive. So Drive talks about our motivations and by extension sort of how motivated we feel at work. And it talks about our motivations being governed by three things, autonomy, and that's being personally able to make decisions and get things done. So think about autonomy next time someone gives you a list of things to fill in on a spreadsheet. Mastery, that's I'm getting better at stuff and purpose. Why am I doing this? Now, Dan, you're going to hear, has changed his opinions on one of those three things since he wrote the book. So it's it's a very... Uh, helpful and timely catch-up. Here's some of the things he talks about in the book because they'll help uh, help you understand them if you've got some context. So he talks about a company called Atlassian and they have a ship it day and that's where they try and achieve something in one day and they uh, they, they they try and sort of accomplish it overnight. We talk about how Google used to boast about 70, 20, 10 time, and you hear me mention both 20% time, which is what you were allowed to dedicate to your side hustle, and 10% time, which you were allowed without restraint to, to apply to anything. Either way, it's all irrelevant. It's like debating the difference between pixies and goblins. None of it ever existed. If you've read Dan's book, the the genius of his work, of his chat today, is he takes time to update all the stories. So I found it a really fascinating exploration. I love the freshness of Dan's writing from when I discovered A Whole New Mind. There's a full transcript of my discussion with Dan on the website. That's going to be helpful because he mentions a few researchers. And if you're interested in seeing people like Theresa, Blaze, TED Talk, I've linked them on the page. And I've also highlighted his main points. Like the episodes this season, I've spent my own time travelling to meet people to get a better quality of audio. It just sounds much nicer. Today's chat is a Skype. Dan's microphone popped a lot. I've edited all of that, but my editing has left my own voice sounding a bit scorched. Sorry about that. Let's intro Dan. Now, we've had plenty of weather this year, all manner of storms and, and hurricanes. And in fact, the week I spoke to Dan, the news was that it had been scorchingly hot in Washington when I phoned him at home. Here's Dan. I don't think we're having anything like the summer that you, you appear to be having in Washington. But has it been hot there? I'm talking about the the climate. (laughs) (laughs) No, all these things are just merging. The metaphorical and the literal are merging into one, aren't they?
1: Uh, Both the literal and the metaphorical
0: are verging on hellish. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Dan, thanks for joining us. Drive was probably the, the most important book for understanding the world of work in the in the last 10 years and, and understanding our motivations for work, the framework of autonomy, purpose and mastery, the, the motivations for, for people in work. It obviously connects because it's so memorable and it's so actionable. I, I just wonder if we could go into those themes in a little depth. And firstly, if we could jump into to autonomy, the freedom sure. to get things done. Um, Everyone who, who sees the sort of the idea, idea of autonomy it can maybe sort of recognize the importance of it. Do you want to explain why? Yeah. Yeah. I think to actually to
1: understand autonomy, especially in the context of business, you have to understand a- different uh, another concept and that's the concept of management okay management what is management right we tend to we tend to take that whole concept too seriously we think that management is something that's always been here right when it actually if you kick management off of its pedestal a little bit you say uh, here's what management is management is a technology it's a technology for organizing people to be productive, it's a technology from the 1850s. Okay, when you get to the heart of it, and you look at the genesis of management, even though it, management is a technology used to get compliance, to get people to do what you want them to do the way you want them to do it. Now, we obviously still need compliance in organizations. You don't want to have an organization full of only compliant people or people who are only compliant. You want people to be engaged. And the funny thing about you, Bruce, or me, or other human beings, is that we don't engage by being managed. Nobody does. The way that human beings engage is is through self direction. And so, um, and so if you really want people to be engaged, and you need engagement for higher level creative conceptual work, you got to give people a little bit more autonomy over the key aspects of their work: what what they do, when they do it, how they do it, who they do it with, when they do it. And so, um, I, I think that's really why it, it 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 matters so much that that human nature. A lot of this research shows, I, I, and, I, and I agree with it, human nature is to be autonomous and self-directed. So we have to start making organizations that go with that
0: grain of human nature rather than against it. Well, I was particularly taken in the, the work that you document in Drive, how certain companies, I guess you'd use the word hack, but certain companies sort of adapt and, and bring autonomy to the fore. So Atlassian is one example, or the examples of, of sort of, you know, hack sessions seem yeah. to be another. Could you give advice on other examples of or how you've seen that work? Okay. Sure. I think there, there are so many examples now. Many
1: of them, you know, came came about after the book was out. And I think there's something really important on this going on in the broader world of work. So many great examples. I'll give you two extremes. You know, the book came out a few years ago. So let me give you some 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 some, some examples that are since then. So uh, in the UK, there are these two guys, Andre Gaiman and Konstantin Novoselov. They teach at the University of Manchester. Uh, they won the Nobel Prize in Physics a few years ago for isolating something called graphene. Graphene is a substance, ultra, 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 ultra thin, but stronger than steel. Okay. It's a huge, it's almost like a fantasy, huge breakthrough in material science. How they organize their work at this laboratory at the University of Manchester? Well, they have regular work that they do. They write grants and they have to fulfill the obligations of those grants. They have papers that are due. They have to deliver those papers. Uh, but at this laboratory, they do also do something that they call Friday evening experiments, where for a few hours, every two or three hours every week, they just work on stuff that they're interested in. The rules can't be anything you have funding for. Can't be anything where you have a paper due. Can't be anything boring. And it's a couple of hours every week. And there's a little kind of island of autonomy. And they ended up making their breakthrough on graphing, not in their regular work, but in the Friday evening experiments, in this kind of this, I I like to of this island of autonomy. So that's so like autonomy leads to the freaking Nobel Prize in physics and one of the greatest breakthroughs in material science in the last hundred years. But then you have on the other side of it is, you know, uh, uh, one of my favorite examples which comes from a credit union here in the States called Columbia Credit Union. It's a credit union. I you have credit unions in the UK. It's I sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a bank. I mean, yeah. People, yeah, it's just a nonprofit and you have members rather than customers and yeah. blah, blah, blah. Um, so this young woman there who uh, runs this customer service department, the customer service department has like six people in it, mostly just answering the phones. And she says to her team, hey, or turns to her boss, but hey boss, I want to do a kind of ship a day like Atlassian does. And her boss says, no way. So she says, oh, God, okay, here we go. So she goes back to the drawing board and she comes up with this idea where she says to her team, team, here's what I would like to do. One hour every week, leave the phones, go somewhere else. Think about a better way to run this place. Think about something that we're not doing for our members that we should be doing for our members. She calls this thing a genius hour, one hour every week. And so if you think about this, this is what's happening out there is that you have work. okay? like you got to do your work. You have you have assignments, you have stuff you need to do, you have deadlines and everything like that. But more and more organizations, large and small, profit and not for profit, whatever, are carving out these little islands where people can spend a few hours doing their own thing doing what they want. And I think that that's, um, I think that's a really good example of how autonomy can lead to greater productivity, greater innovation.
0: Oh, that's interesting because I was worried whether in the intervening time that you talked about, whether there'd been a push back on autonomy. So I saw that Google updated their investors' letter a few years ago saying yeah. 20% time had gone. And in fact, I, I worked for four years at Google and I never once heard anyone, engineer or otherwise, talk about it. I mean, in fact, it, it was once described, yeah, we do we do. 10% time. It's called Saturday. Yeah. Um, and, and I wondered if there'd been a pushback against autonomy. So you think it's actually. Li- li- I don't think thinking. it's a
1: pushback. I don't think it's a pushback against autonomy. I think it's basically a recognition. I think there's a recognition that autonomy can lead to greater work. I think the, the question is, how do you give people sufficient autonomy and especially in fast paced businesses where their are deliverables, where stuff has to get done. And so I think that, that something like 20% time was almost from its inception, too big of a bite at the apple. All right. It was too much. Um, and so what you see now is an array of more modest things. So if you think about this Friday evening experiment, it's like two or three hours a week. Okay. That's not 10%. This other was a credit union. So they work one hour, they work one hour a week, Uh, They have a genius hour for one hour a week and in a 40 hour work week, that's that's two and a half percent time. You know, so I think that what's what's happening is, is that it's a it's that autonomy is being recognized. But how it's being operationalized is a little bit more modest. I mean, as you know, Google pulled back from from that that 20 percent time and most very few companies do 20 percent time now. You have some who are doing things akin to 10 percent time. But what you see more is you see more companies doing more modest things, a ship it day, genius hour, Friday evening experiments a Freestyle Friday, rather than these, these you know, something much more audacious.
0: Because the, the thing that really struck me was autonomy was the thing that was most assailed in the time since you've written Drive by the sort of the growth of email. You know, like, the, the one thing that seems to leave all of us feeling powerless now is is these 300 emails that we're getting a day. And Total. and I just wondered whether, you know, autonomy was the sort of thing, that freedom to, to experiment was the sort of thing that might be being squeezed out. Is, is there Anything that you think we can do to push back on just the march of digital demands on us? No, I I think I think what we have to do is that we have to recognize that
1: we are in charge. Our devices are not in charge, our emails are not in charge, we are in charge. And what I have become is, I've become a bit more ferocious proponent of both simplification and prioritization. So what do I mean by that? So one idea is something called, so I have it here, I'm talking to you from my office, over there on, I have a whiteboard right there. I mean, we're on audio, but you can, you can see it right there, okay? And it says like, what's my MIT for today? Most important thing, all right? So you set your priority, what's my most important thing? Do that first, don't check Twitter, Don't check my email. Do my most important thing. Set priorities. The other thing, which you see in in high performers, is that they will dedicate a certain amount of time each day, literally, to reading. Just like read stuff. Like, if you think about all the time I've wasted answering email and all that, you know, I could have taken that hour to read something, I'd be a lot better off. And so I just think it's a matter of us establishing priorities, uh, simplifying, and, and sticking with it. Now, I recognize that's very difficult to do. And so it's easier for me to do because I work for myself. It's harder for people in organizations to do, but I think bosses have to give people cover to do that. They have to say, you know, here's your, you know, I'm going to be, our company, our organization is going to be better off if you spend more focused time doing your most important task. If you spend more focused time learning, because there's a finite number of hours in the day, the thing that might sacrifice on that is responding to an email where there are 37 people CC'd on it.
0: Yeah. We move on from from autonomy and, and sort of managing work and just talk a little bit about mastery. So, the, the- yes. How do you see mastery and getting better at things? How do you see that best exemplified in in modern working environments.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things to understand here is on uh, Mastery is, is the research. And I think the best piece of research to come out on this was from maybe five years, six years ago, uh, from Teresa Mobile at Harvard Business School, where she, the way she did the research, I thought was really interesting. She got several, it's all done in North America, but she got several other people at these North American organizations to receive an email at the end of every day. And the email said, how was your day? Were you motivated or not motivated? And so what she got, and so people would answer the hey, today was motivated because of this. Today was not motivated because of that. And so she collected these things from several hundred people more than a year. It's basically, think about 12,000 daily diary entries of what are people motivated or not on the job. She crunches the numbers. The single biggest motivator by far was making progress in meaningful work. The days people were making progress were the days they were motivated. Now, you know, so I think that the evidence here is is, is really powerful. How are organizations getting better at doing this? I think there are a couple of interesting things going on. Number one, is that ever so slowly, they are improving the feedback mechanisms inside of firms. So the only way you know whether you're making progress is if you're getting information on how you're doing. Truth be told, annual performance reviews are not an effective way to give people feedback on how they're doing. They're a joke. This is why. I mean, this is remarkable. I would not have thought this was possible when I, when I wrote the book. Adobe got rid of formal performance reviews. Accenture got rid of formal performance reviews. Uh, GE got rid of performance reviews. And so now there's this search. I don't think the problem has been solved, but there's a search inside of companies for how do we give people rich, regular, robust, meaningful feedback to help them make progress, to help them achieve mastery. I don't think that problem has been solved, but I do think people understand the diagnosis a lot better and they're making good faith effort to move towards solutions.
0: That learning mentality, that that sense of, of continuous improvement is actually a really desirable thing. I was reading a really a good bit um, about Seeking Systems, which is sort of a bit of work by Jack Pansep at Washington State University University, and he just talks about how that desire to learn new things and, and seek more is, is a really important part of self renewal. And it mastery seems sort of very much linked to that. Absolutely. You see, this
1: here's the thing: like, just like watch what people do. Okay, think about on the weekends. You got people all over the world playing sports. Why are they going to become professional athletes? No, they like it, and they get better at playing tennis or running or swimming. You got people playing musical instruments or singing in choirs. Why are they going to become recording artists? No, they like it and they get better at it. And so I, I think it's part of what makes us tick. I think actually it connects, Bruce, to your earlier point, which is that one of the, the the obstacles to doing this is the constant deluge of text messages and email that is preventing people from doing that. Like if you want to learn, you need focused time and attention to learn something. You can't do it in between answering emails.
0: Yeah, like when you feel like you're treading water with digital communication demands upon you, you feel like you're at least making progress in something else.
1: Yeah. I, I, that's something that happened to me. I mean, I'm not unique in this in that I had this, you know, like a lot of times I deal with my email like this. If I can answer it immediately, I do. If not, I put it into a another folder and I try to do it in batches. That's one of my maintenance things. So it's like, so put it in a certain email folder and I'll then answer it in batches. So I'll sit, you know, when I'm completely fried and I'll try to do it, or if I'm traveling, I'll do it on an airplane or something like that. A few weeks ago, I inadvertently and permanently deleted that folder. Okay. There wasn't a huge number of emails there, but there were like fifty. I just lost them, couldn't retrieve them, and you know what? World didn't end.
0: Could I, um, could I sort of just take us on to to the, so the third part of the themes, which is purpose, and and I, I just wanted you to help really sort of answer that question because that's the one that I think we've heard most of in the in the last. Interesting. Talk eight years. And it's really been appropriated for every single use, hasn't it? But I just wonder if you could give us a clarification. For you, is purpose the thing that gets an individual up in the morning or is it the thing that a company has stenciled onto their main wall? Which is it? Is it this corporate thing or is it this individual thing?
1: I'm going to give you the worst possible answer to that. It's neither, and it's both. Okay, so let me tell you. Let me tell you what I mean by that, because I changed my view on this since I wrote the book, uh, based on some new research and ba- based on some research and based on some interviews. So I have a slightly different view of purpose now, because uh, I think I initially got it wrong. Here's how I think about purpose now. I think there are two kinds of purpose. One of them is what I like. I, I, I don't. I don't have a better name for it. It's what I call capital P purpose, like uppercase P purpose, and that is. Am I doing something big and transcendent? Am I, you know, when I go to work today, I'm helping to solve the climate crisis. I'm helping to feed the hungry, put shoes on the shoeless, list, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, there's evidence, that's a pretty good performance enhancer, right? It's important at both the individual level and the corporate level. It really is. But it's not the only kind of purpose there is. And the truth of the matter is that many of us in our day-to-day job, we can't access that kind of purpose every single day. OK, I can't come into my office here at the garage behind my house and say, today I'm playing a role in ending dependence on fossil fuels. You know, it's like I'm doing something more. Mond- I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write this chap, you know. And so I think that the most the other kind of purpose is important is what you can think of as lowercase, you know, small p-purpose, lowercase p-purpose. And that's simply this. Am I making a contribution? That's it. If I, in a corporate setting, if I didn't show up to work today, would anybody care? Would anybody notice? Would something not get done? Did I make, you know, Bruce's love, you know, did I help Bruce out? Because he was in a pinch and I helped him out. I made a contribution. I didn't, by doing that, I didn't end world hunger, but I made a contribution to Bruce, you know, and if I didn't do that, things would have been less good. There's some great, there's some other, there's some great researchers about um, about cooks that when you allow cooks to see like a, like cooks in a cafeteria when you allow cooks to see the customers, the quality of the food improves. They're not feeding like destitute people they're feeding you know middle class people in Chicago or Boston or London, you know, getting their lunch. But when they can see the customer, the quality of the food improves. Why? Hey, I'm making a contribution. I'm making this cheese omelet and someone's going to eat it. I want it to be good because like someone's eating it. And so that's how I, I mean, forgive the long-winded response, but that's the way I think about purpose now. Capital P and small p. Am I making a difference? And that's important, okay, if you can do that. But also like day-to-day, am I making a contribution? And that's also really, really important. And I think that when you look at it at the company level to go to your initial question, There is something to be said for having the the fact that the purpose is stenciled on the wall. Is less important than if it's kind of imbued in the airstream. Okay. But also, if you're a leader in an organization, just letting people know they made a contribution, letting people know that if they didn't show up, we would miss you, letting people know that it's like, hey, you didn't come to work today, something wouldn't have gotten done is also really important and is a really, is a form of purpose. So um, I've changed my view on this because, because I think that a lot of times when we see the word purpose, it's such a muscular, majestic kind of word that we think it only means this big, 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 big kind of purpose. But when, In fact, that other kind of purpose is just as
0: important. So you've you've helped at least enrich it, if not, because that's used for so many different things now, isn't it? Finally, when we're we're trying to make sense of work, I've seen you talk about there's a big thing where people at the end of their career will be proud of the things they initiated, not the things that they responded to, which I think is sort of what you hinted uh, along the the way there. Is is there any way that we can balance that more? I mean, probably just being aware of it is an important step, isn't it?
1: I agree with you. I think being aware of it is an important step. I also think it's basically, you know, it's an architectural problem in our lives. And so you have to build your life the way that you want it built. And so it's like, you know, if if you have a hole in the roof, fix the freaking roof. Okay? That yeah, you know, that's that's an architectural problem in your house. So if you have a hole in the roof and that it's like you're spending too much time responding to things, solve that problem. Tell your boss, you know what, I'm not able to do my best work under these kinds of conditions. Put it on an autoresponder saying, I try to read every email, but I just I'm sorry, I just can't reply to every email. Put put some kind of put some kind of boundaries on, on, on your work. It's hard. All right. I don't wanna I don't wanna be simplistic about it. It's hard to do. You know, you got to ask the most important question in life, which is compared to what? All right. Is it hard to put those kinds of boundaries, have time where you can do focus heads down work, you can do focus learning? Is that hard to do? Yeah, it's hard to do. But- is there a cost, but compared to what? Compared to the cost of spending your days, your weeks, your months, your years, your life, simply responding to email rather than doing your best work, that's a bigger cost. And so, yeah, so, and 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 what I think the key here in organizations is you need bosses to understand this and give people cover. Uh, one of the things that you see you know, in some of the work of someone like Bob Sutton at Stanford and others is that one of the things the best bosses do is that they have their employees' backs. If Bruce doesn't if I'm Bruce's boss and and Bruce doesn't respond to Mary's email and Mary is hacked up about that, I have Bruce's back. And I say, you know what? That's cool. Bruce was so busy doing something else that was more important. Sorry about that. You know, he has to prioritize. And I, so I think it's individuals taking action and bosses giving them cover.
0: The final thing I wanted to ask, because I see that you're working on a new book about time, about, I, I guess- About timing, yeah. Timing, yeah yeah, 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 There was one thing through one of the, the previous episodes, um, I was chatting to someone who, who'd noticed that a lot of authors write for three hours a day in the morning and, you know, these patterns. And and um, and I was just interested in what other patterns that you've observed in your, in your preparation for that. Are there any times a day that are more suitable to us dispatching emails or dealing with certain parts of our jobs?
1: Uh, there actually are. For most people, what you see is you see a pattern of the day that has basically a peak, a trough, and a rebound. Um, generally, in the morning, people have a peak. That's when they do best at kind of analytic heads down to work. There's often a trough after that in the afternoon where people don't do very well on anything. That's a good time for email. That's a good time for some of this other stuff. And then people often have a rebound a little bit later where they're often very good at creative kinds of stuff, more conceptual kinds of things. Um, now, that's a pattern that holds for about three quarters of the population. The other quarter of the population actually runs the other way. So if you you have, if you have people who are the metaphor in the world of chronobiology is larks and owls. Now, the truth is most people are in the middle. Most people are neither larks, you know, hardcore larks or hardcore owls, but about a fourth of us are pretty owly. And so if you're an owl, you know, it goes the other way. So if you're an owl, do your kind of creative work in the morning when you're a little bit more groggy, you have fewer inhibitions, slide through the afternoon trough and do your heads down focus work later in the day. I'm a middle guy. So so I, I abide by that because I, I, when I write books, I come into this office and in the morning and I um, I mean, I got my MIT right there. I have my MIT on the board and I turn off my phone and I close out my email and I give myself a word count I have to hit. And I am not allowed to do anything else until I hit that word count. Sometimes I hit my word count by 11 in the morning. Sometimes I don't hit it till four in the afternoon. Those are bad days. When were you expecting the book, time? January. Yeah. January in the United States. January. January in the United Kingdom, it's called When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Time. And I really appreciate your time today. Thanks, mm-hmm. Bruce. It was fun. I'm immensely grateful. Thank you, Dan. All right. Thank you so much. Bye.
0: If you have got 20 minutes, watching the Theresa play video about the progress principle I've linked to at the, the website is really helpful. You can find that at Eat Sleep Work eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. People basically say they're happy at work if they feel like they've made progress in meaningful tasks. It's pretty clear to me that the big issue that we've got at work is reducing internal emails emails with customers are fine internal emails are what killing work we need a we need a methodology to do just that so In the run up to the event, I'm running with Sue Todd on the 2nd of November. We've launched the New Work Manifesto. That's up on the website. That's eight simple changes that anyone can do to improve their work. And and that's why I was in the Times on Saturday. We'll be going through the New Work Manifesto at the event. Um, We've also got some fantastic guests of the show coming up. Uh, We've got Biz Stone, he's the founder of Twitter. I had a fantastic discussion with Beers about culture, about creativity at work. It's a really fun, really fun discussion. The following week, we're back to science. I'll be talking to Dan Cable. Dan's book is one of the best culture books since Dan Pink's Drive. It's it's out next year, but it's incredible. Uh, coming up after that, we've got Angela Duckworth. We've got Emma Seppala, We've got a whole load of, of extra guests that I think you're going to love. Feel free to get in touch. Uh, My LinkedIn's open and you can email me at podcast at eatsleepworkrepeat.fm You can also follow us on Twitter if you search for Eat Sleep Work Repeat. Speak to you next week.